The Trinity is one of the foundational teachings of biblical Christianity. Yet many today, even those calling themselves Christians, are questioning and doubting this very important revelation from God. But what does the Bible have to say about the Trinity? That's what we're here to find out. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, I'm your host today. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We are jumping back into another series today, a very important series, one that I've actually wanted to do for quite a while. It's on the Trinity. The Trinity is a foundational teaching in Christianity, and what motivated me to do this series, to really make a comprehensive series, a very detail-intensive series, as usual, I like to be very thorough because I want these episodes to be resources for you, whether you're somebody who's a seasoned veteran in the Word or you're just starting out, ultimately I want these to be a resource for you for years to come, hopefully. But the point is this, I've seen a lot of people, especially recently, who call themselves Christians, deny this very fundamental teaching of the Bible and of the church. Now, of course, when I say the church, I'm not saying anything specific. I'm not saying like the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church or anything like that. I'm I'm talking about the body of believers of biblical Christians throughout history. That, to me, is what I say when I say the church. And that has, and the Trinity has been a foundational teaching of the church. Now, recently, it's become very vogue to challenge that and to teach people that the Trinity is a pagan idea and all these other things that we're going to be looking at today. So it really motivated me to make a comprehensive study of this. So I'm very excited for this. And... If you have tuned into my End Time series, you, like me, are not surprised that there are so many false teachings in the world and so much misinformation, because we are living in the end times. If you have watched the End Time series, if you haven't, go watch it, but if you have watched it, you know that we are in that final generation, most likely. Those final moments, again, I don't know when Christ will return, but I do know that we are in those final moments, just look around you, and it's very obvious that Satan is really, you know, on parade here doing his worst because he knows the time is very short. He knew the time was short when the cross came, but now the time is extremely short. So it's it's a pretty crazy world. But today I want to begin with some basic understandings of the Trinity and unpack also some common objections. So that's going to be very important to start us off, really setting a foundation. Also looking at how reality reflects the Trinity. You'd be surprised, but really, I mean, I'm not surprised because ultimately everything, the Bible tells us that Christ made everything for himself, for his glory. And so we should be able to look around nature and we look look around reality, look around history, ourselves, everything points to Christ. And so we'll look at how reality actually is a reflection of the triune being that created it. We're going to look at how the Trinity is at work in the Bible in a lot of different ways. And just this is going to be a cursory introduction. We have a lot of things to get into, very deep topics in future episodes. So today is going to be more about setting the foundation. But we will look at some biblical things that are very important. Uh, We'll look at like inter-Trinitarian relationships. We'll look at some important doctrines regarding the Trinity and some things that are steering outside of those important doctrines. And so ultimately, my goal is to give you a foundation. This is a big picture overview, a lot of groundwork 
concepts. Uh, and later in the series, we're going to get very detailed. We're going to establish that there are three persons that the Bible teaches. And we'll do so thoroughly using both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's my promise to you. We're also going to establish that each person is God. And we'll see how there's a basis in both the Old and the New Testaments. We're going to address a lot of objections in this series. Now, today I'm going to look at four kind of general big ones that seem to pop up online and in these debates. But we're going to look at a lot more objections in future episodes because this there's a lot to discuss on the Trinity. It's very fascinating. Of course, it's fascinating because we're talking about God. But we're also going to address towards the end of the series what have been called heresies, things like modalism, Unitarianism, all these different belief systems that basically deny the Trinity and why it's so important. Why have these been called heresies and why are they heresies? It's very important. It's not like we're splitting hairs over spiritual gifts or, you know, something less consequential. This is a fun, fundamental, foundational reality. And I, my goal would be to show you that it is, why this is a hill to die on as a Christian. But if you believe in the Trinity, the Trinity, not the Trinity, if you believe in the Trinity, my goal is to edify you in this series and give you resources so that you can study and show yourself approved and, and have knowledge and wisdom and the word and evidence to be able to defend what you believe. If you are unsure about the Trinity, if you're a new Christian, if you if you want to learn, you're not really sure about any of this stuff, then my goal is to give you ample evidence and resources in scripture, in context, and all the things we're going to be looking at to show you that the Trinity is indeed what the Bible teaches so that you have a solid foundation underneath you. Now, of course, my goal is also to reach people who believe that the Trinity is not real, to that, that reject the Trinity, but they're open to learning. You're open to considering another perspective. So if you do not believe in the Trinity, let's say you're Muslim, and maybe one of the things that's preventing you from coming to Christianity is that you feel that you're going to be a polytheist because Christianity has a trinity. My goal is to show you that this is not the case. So again, if you're open, and if you're open to the truth, my goal is to show you that the trinity is not only a monotheistic idea, but it's unique to the only God, which is Yahweh. Allah doesn't exist. Allah is a false god. There are many false gods. There's only one true God, and that is Yahweh. But Yahweh has revealed himself in a very specific way that in of itself is a mystery, and that's what's profound, and we know that it ties back to an infinite being because it is a mystery. So without further ado, now, I also composed a very handy-dandy, beautiful, I think, Trinity infographic. The Lord really inspired me to do it, and you know, I used to do a lot of Photoshop and design and stuff. So I'm very grateful that I'm using these skills to glorify God. And so hopefully you find this Trinity graphic useful. If you go to danceoflife.com slash Trinity, you'll be able to see all of the episodes of this series. I'm going to be up uploading them there as well. But also you're going to have access for free to that Trinity graphic, which is, again, it's it's a, uh, it's a nice graphical representation of the relationships within the Trinity with biblical verses about what each person does within the Trinity. 
So you can use that as a study guide. You can use it for your own Bible studies, or if you have Bible study courses or classes you're leading or participating, feel free to incorporate the, the guide. It's yours to use. So why is the Trinity important? Let's start with that. Well, at the very best, at the very best, if you don't understand the Trinity, it harms your appreciation and understanding of God, of who Yahweh is. Because Yahweh revealed himself in the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, as a triune being. And again, I will prove that to you over and over again throughout this series. Today we're looking at just superficial, you know, groundwork, foundational stuff. Not superficial as in meaningless, but superficial as in just the surface level kind of stuff. But it's very important because we have to appreciate who God is. And if you reject the Trinity, you don't understand it, then at the very least, it's it's preventing you from having something to marvel at God. You know, life, the whole purpose of being created was so that we could worship and marvel at God. That is really it. And the more opportunities you have to understand and marvel, of course, you're never going to fully understand God because he's an infinite being. But the more we can marvel at him, I think that that is fulfilling our purpose, the purpose we were created for. Now, at worst, so it's a sliding scale here. Now, keep, keep track of this. At the best, if you don't understand or reject the Trinity, it's harming your ability to appreciate who God is. At the worst, it can be a salvation issue. Because some people who reject the Trinity reject the deity of Christ. And that is a salvation issue, and it leads to a works-based, salvation works-based type of gospel. And again, I'm going to back up all the things that I say today. Today, again, is just laying the groundwork. But this is what we're dealing with. It could potentially be a salvation issue, and that's why this is a hill to die on. The Trinity explains God's actions clearly and his plan of salvation. It makes sense of what God has revealed about himself. There are a lot of things in the Bible that if you reject the Trinity, they do not make sense. The Trinity is the best possible explanation given the facts. And you're going to hear this over and over again. It's about the facts. And we're going to look at the facts in this series. The Trinity is also consistent with God's character. That's why it's important. Otherwise, we have a lot of problems For example, self-glorification. If it's just one person, like modalism teaches, you have a lot of very serious problems that now question God's character. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. But if there's only one person, God is dying on the cross, just one person being punished by himself to glorify himself. None of these things make sense if it's one person. You have one God, but you have three persons. So, of course, naturally this leads to objections. And the first objection that a lot of people struggle with is that the Trinity isn't logical, right? It's just not logical. But what does logic mean? Logic means following a particular type of reasoning, right? So it's, it's really funny when we use this term because the Trinity does follow reasoning. There's a lot of reasoning behind it. But when we say, oh, it's not logical, we we tend to to mean that, oh, that system of reasoning, I don't agree with. Like if you ever get in a fight with somebody or an argument and their way of doing things is very different from your way of doing things. And you say, oh, that's just not logical. Well, it's not logical to you in the sense that it didn't follow the logic that you followed. 
right? So most of the time when we say this, we have to realize that we are struggling with our own understanding rather than appealing to a objective standard. But the Trinity is very logical, and you'll you'll see that hopefully even just in this first episode. But our logic is limited by a limited brain. It's limited by the physical world, the material world. And one of the rules in this material world is that two things cannot coexist in the same space at the same time. That's a limitation of our physical selves, physical realities. Two things cannot exist in the same space at the same time. But does this apply to God? The answer should be, in your mind, no, it doesn't apply. Why doesn't it apply? Because God is spirit. God exists as spirit. Of course, he took on flesh as Jesus Christ, but that was only one of the persons who did that. God is a spirit being, and we know that from several places in Scripture. But the spirit world is not limited by two places, uh, two things in the same space at the same time. Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 9 says, My ways are not your ways. How much higher are God's ways than ours? Considerably higher, right? As high as the sky is from the ground. It's, it's an unimaginable, unimaginably different reality that God exists in. And so this idea that it's not logical starts to, starts to crumble because logic is limited to our physical reality, and God isn't limited by logic, by our logic. Now, the main problem that we have with this two things not fitting in the same space at the same time and applying it to God is that the spirit world there's evidence in the Bible that shows that the spirit world is not limited by this. And one such place is in Mark 5, verse 9, where the demoniac is possessed, and Jesus says, For come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. So there were many demons, evil spirits, within this young boy or man, and... They were all juxtaposed with one another. And when when Jesus asked for the name of the individual, so one individual, what did the Spirit say? They said, my name is Legion. They answered as one being, so to speak, even though there were multiple spirits. So again, we can't understand that because we're limited by physical, you know, physical realities. Two things cannot be in the same space at the same time. But that's not the case for the spirit world. And we know again from places like John 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. God is a spiritual being. So if this is the case, then saying that three persons who are each three spiritual spiritual being, God is a spiritual being with three persons, and that spirit being some sort of complex unity, that's not out of the question, given what we know about the spirit world. Our understanding of many things is very limited in the world, even in the physical world. Consider things like the placebo effect, Heisenberg uncertainty principle, if you know anything about physics or electrons, trying to measure the position and the speed of an electron is impossible. You can't do both at the same time. There's always some uncertainty. We don't really even know how things like DNA or how life was started. We have no clue. Life is a mystery. Weather is still a mystery. After all the technology and CGI and computers we have and math models, we still can't really accurately predict the weather 100%. 
There's just so many things that we don't understand. And so that's in the physical world, let alone something like spirit and God, who is the creator beyond creation. It's impossible to say that it's not logical. Nothing about God is limited to our logic. We just describe things most of the time. We don't actually understand how they work. Science describes things very well, and it the descriptions lead to predictable assumptions, but we don't actually understand how things work. We don't understand why life exists. How did it get started? It's a mystery. At what point do inanimate things become cells that move around and then live and reproduce? That's a mystery. It really is. It's a fascinating mystery. But if the truth is, here's the point, if the truth is limited to the physical world, then we're limiting God to the physical world, then we're not talking about God anymore. See the problem? So the fact that we can't understand something like the Trinity and wrap our limited brains around it is evidence that we're dealing with the supreme being. This is the point. And trying to put God in a box means that you are rejecting the evidence that that supreme being revealed about himself. The Trinity is not something that we can completely understand, probably never will. We'll marvel at it, but we'll never fully understand it. And it's just, it is the way it is. It's the best explanation given the facts. And again, we're going to look at the facts in this series. I really hope to show you a lot of facts, beyond a shadow of a doubt type of facts. We're going to be very thorough and we're going to address a lot of the objections. And again, we're, we're really going to look at history and scripture because our goal is to be very detail-oriented in this series so there is no room for doubt. That's my goal. No room for doubt. Again, if you're somebody that believes in the Trinity, my goal is to edify you. If you're not sure, then my goal is to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's what the Bible has always taught. And even if you don't believe in the Trinity, that's also my goal, is to show you that this is what the Bible teaches and you are not a polytheist by believing in the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is not a static model. It's also, it's a dynamic model showing relationships. So this is an important thing. It's not, it's not this static, just three persons just standing there. It's one God existing in three dynamically interwoven relationships. It's a very fascinating thing. But, you know, when, when something is unclear, you have to think of, of this. You have to not respond by saying, well, let me try to make it clear by fitting it into my limited understanding of the world. On the other hand, you should actually think, well, if this is not clear and we're dealing with something about God and it's a mystery, then maybe this was on purpose. Maybe this was designed in such a way so that we would not be able to put God in a box. God, of course, cannot be put in a box, period. He's infinite. All the things, think, consider all the things that we do not understand or have a way to fully appreciate about God being self-existing, meaning that he wasn't created. Nobody created God. He's always existed. How does that work? How does it work to self-exist and to exist for eternity before you created the universe? What was God doing during that time? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. But other things the Bible says are things like that he sustains everything by the word of his power. Everything he's connected to everything, he sustains it all. He's omniscient, means he knows everything that's ever happened, everything that ever will happen. He doesn't forget anything. He knows 
everything. He's omnipotent, meaning he has complete power over everything. How does that work? How does omnipresent work? Meaning he's present in every place. He's present right now with me in this room. He's present with you. He knows everybody, everywhere, what everybody's doing all the time. He's created miracles, right? There's so many things in the Bible we'll talk about that are miraculous. How do any of those things work? And yet we accept them. If you're a Christian, we accept all of these things about God. We accept that he's self-existing. That's a mystery. We accept that he sustains everything in every moment. That's a mystery. We accept that he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. We accept that he's done miracles like parting the Red Sea, resurrecting people from the dead. You accept all that. But then when it comes to the Trinity, why is it such a problem? Why is having another thing that's just beyond logic and and mysterious such a problem? This This is what you need to ask yourself if you are rejecting the Trinity or if you you're not sure about the Trinity. Why is the Trinity such a problem when there are so many other things that you have to accept about God based on what the Bible has revealed to you about him that are equally as mysterious and equally as, quote, illogical? God is not limited by anything, but if he is limited by location, right? To put two things in the same space, same time. If he's limited by power, if he's limited by causality, you know, then that's not God. But he's not limited by any of those things. So if he's not limited by his place, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's self-existing, if he's not limited by anything that we can determine, why would his consciousness be limited? He's the source of consciousness. He's the one who created consciousness. So why would his being be limited? Ever thought about that? In our world, we are limited in the sense that for every person, there's only one consciousness, right? You get one soul, one consciousness. You don't have two consciousnesses. That's pretty consistent rule throughout creation, even with the animals. But God, who is the source of all things, what if he has a complex consciousness in some way? Who knows? I mean, again, these are just things to to get your mind thinking a little bit because the Bible reminds you countless times to be a fool. There's nothing, and we're going to look at these verses, but there's nothing in creation that is identical to the Trinity. It's a completely unique thing to God. Nothing in creation has a complex consciousness or, you know, three persons, one being type of thing. It's impossible in the physical world because physical things are limited by two things in uh, two things in the same space, same time. But the spiritual world is not limited. And the Bible reminds you to be a fool. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in, his, in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Later in, uh, actually earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And of course, even earlier than that, I'm going backwards here, but Christ, the wisdom and power of God, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Bible reminds you that being foolish in, the, in a godly foolishness, 
in the sense of humility, which is foolishness of the world, is a good thing. The foolishness, the cross is foolishness of the world. Why? Because those who are perishing think that it's ridiculous that some man dying on a cross somehow gives you eternal life. That's what the world thinks. But the Bible tells you otherwise. And once you see the truth, you see that it's not foolishness. You see actually the opposite, that the world is foolishness. So the Bible tells you to be a fool in a good way many times. And that has to do with being like a child, like the way Christ told us to to look at faith and to accept the things that he's saying, to approach him like a child, to have an open heart and to believe. Because how many crazy things are in the Bible? Have you ever sat down to enumerate them? If you've read through the whole Bible, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a talking donkey, and there's earth being created in six days, people coming back to life, giants, a worldwide flood, people living to be hundreds of years old, crazy, crazy battles, right? Like with Gideon and his 300 versus, you know, 10,000 or whatever it is. Countless battles like that where they're it's impossible for those people to have won without a supernatural intervention, which is what the Bible tells us. Burning bush with Moses and somebody talking out of the burning bush, and yet the bush is not being consumed and the person is in there. Supernatural events like the um, Red Sea parting or judgments on Egypt, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's literally, I think every book in the Bible has something supernatural in it that requires you to believe. There's no logical explanation for it. And that is the point. There is nothing logical and explainable about these things because it's designed to point you to God who is beyond your logic. So the Trinity is not logical by worldly standards. Absolutely not. The worldly standards are worldly standards. They're not the standards of God. Most of the Bible isn't logical by worldly standards. God is an infinite mind, and he's unique. He's a unique being with unique circumstances. So it is to be expected that everything concerning his being, who he is, how he is, is completely unique and different from anything else in creation. That is to be expected. That's a logical conclusion. So this objection, this first objection that the Trinity is illogical, doesn't actually hold any water because logic, God isn't limited by worldly logic. And in fact, it is very logical for God as a triune being to exist in such a way that we couldn't really understand him because he's the creator. Do you see the logic there? Do you see the reasoning? He's the creator. He's outside of the creation. Therefore, the things that he is and and the things that, that describe him can't possibly be limited by creation. So objection number one, that it's not logical, it doesn't hold any water. Now, the second objection is pretty short and easy. And that is that the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. So this is an argument from silence. So if you hear it, what it means is anytime you argue, well, they never said this, that's called an argument from silence. And just because the Trinity, the word Trinity is not written anywhere, that doesn't mean that it's not taught. And we have very easy proof for that because, for example, God is omnipotent. We talked about that. He's omnipresent. He's self-existing. Nowhere does it say in the Bible these three words. 
Nowhere it says self-existing. This is a teaching and understanding that comes from many places in Scripture and the necessity for a creator to be self-existing if he's the one who created reality. These are inferred things, omnipresence, omnipotence. You know, for example, Proverbs uh, 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. What does that tell you? That tells you that God is watching. That means he's omnipresent. He knows everything that's happening all the time. The word omnipresent isn't used in the Bible, but are you going to say it because it's not used that God isn't omnipresent? Is that what we're arguing? And if the answer is no, which it should be, because it's an argument from silence and arguments from silence are a fallacy, then the same is with the Trinity. So so this objection saying that the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so therefore, you know, this is just made up. Well, that's not true at all. There's many things that we teach about God or about, you know, Christianity or being a Christian that are not directly explicitly worded in the Bible. The word pornography is not in the Bible. But you know that it's a sin. How do you know? Because Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that looking at a woman with lust is equal to adultery. So when you're looking at pornography, are you looking at a woman with lust? Yes. Well, there you go. So we're using inference and critical thinking to see that indeed the Bible teaches against pornography. You don't need to have it listed. If that was the case, the Bible would have to be, you know, 100,000 pages long, who knows, probably even more, to, to, to codex and to index every single infraction that you could possibly take or every single thing that you could possibly know. It's, it's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to give you principles and revelation and for you to study and munch on the Word and relate things to each other and see what is what is God revealing here. God wants you to be in a relationship with his word. And that means studying because that's good for us. It's it's it part of our sanctification and development as Christians. So this objection doesn't hold any water. And again, if you hear it, it's an argument from silence. Now objection number three is a little more complicated one. It's the Trinity is pagan or it's made up by the Catholic Church and the Council of Nicaea. Now, I'm going to give a couple caveats here. Go watch my End Time series. If you have not watched the End Time series, go watch it. We talk about the true Antichrist power, which the prophets prophesied of. That's Daniel and John, specifically. And yes, it is the Catholic papacy. That is the beast system. So this is this is some low-hanging fruit for conspiracy theorists, basically to say, oh, see, the, Trinity, the Catholic church and they know all the evils of the catholic church and so therefore you know the, the catholic church is trinitarian so there you go they they must have made it up it's a false teaching they're trying to deceive you this is guilt by association it's it's a fallacy to look at you know the catholic church has a long record of sins absolutely and we look at that in the end time series and the catholic church will come back to power at the end of days we're we're nearing those times where the kings of the earth will give their power to mystery Babylon who sits on seven hills. Now, this is news to you. First and foremost, I have nothing against Catholics. I went to a Catholic school. I have Catholic friends. I, you know, I went to preppy high schools, you know, so I'm not against Catholic individuals. I grew up Eastern Orthodox, but the Catholic system as an institution, the papacy specifically, is the Antichrist power that the prophets warned us about. And I highly recommend you, if you don't know anything about that, if you if that's news to you, if that's shocking, if you're insulted by that, 
I'm not trying to insult you. Go watch my end time series and you will learn the truth because the institution of religion, the institutionalization of religion and how that religion unified with church and state for over 1300 years and how it's going to come back in the same fashion. This is what the prophets warned us about. So, but not to digress, the Catholic Church is low-hanging fruit because everybody knows about crusades, inquisitions, if you know anything about the Jesuits, of course. There's a lot of controversy with the Catholic Church. And so this one seems like it's true because it combines a truth with a lie, which is that the Catholic Church made up the Trinity. The Catholic Church did not make up the Trinity. And we're going to look at why. There's several reasons. The first one is that borrowing something doesn't mean that it remains pagan. Let me explain this a little more in depth. El, E-L, was the supreme Canaanite deity. If you've studied anything like in the ancient Near East about how they had different gods, El was the supreme god. Now, El was used by Hebrews in their writings. For example, Elohim. Elohim is a word for God. It's also a word for you know, angels, word for judges, for word for a lot of things, but it's used for God most of the time. Also, Micah-el, Raphael, all the words that end with El in Hebrew have to do with God. Something, Micah-el is warrior of God, Raphael is, I think, healer of God. So El was borrowed from the Canaanites. Does that mean that El, when the Hebrews say Elohim, are they referring to a pagan deity? Of course not. They didn't have a word, so they borrowed it, and the, the meaning changed. This is very important to understand. Another example is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's an older story of the flood, of, you know, all, all the things that happened, and people say, see, you know, this whole story about Noah and the flood, that was just borrowed from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, does that mean that the Bible was copied, or does it mean something else? And the answer is no. They're both talking about the same event that happened before both of those things were written down. But we know that most cultures, most mythologies, Greco-Roman mythologies, Indian mythologies, ancient Near East mythologies, they had a habit to exaggerate and to change details. But the Hebrews were very, very unique in terms of their passing down information. They were very specific. They were very much true. And this was part of their reason. The reason for this was part of, how do I say this? The reason for this, why the Hebrews were so specific about their transfer of information was because of their relationship to God. It was unique to the Hebrew culture. They were very specific about transferring specific details, not changing anything. Their oral tradition, their, their scribe tradition, it was very you know, specific compared to the other cultures where elaboration and emphasis and changing details and making things even greater than they were before from generation to generation. This was very much encouraged in those other cultures. So what does this mean? Well, it means you have an event that happened because every culture has a story about the flood, every culture in the world. So obviously something happened, but you have different narratives of it. Now, we know that the Bible is the Word of God, so we trust the Bible's version. And of course, maybe some of those other narratives might be interesting to read, to see what they say. But if they conflict with the Word of God, then we know 
that those are just elaborations. The Bible is the truth. And so it doesn't disprove the Bible, doesn't say the Bible was copied from the Epic of Gilgamesh, because these things actually happened, and they were just reported by different peoples. Some other examples, pagans built temples. Pagans had temples long before the, the Jews and the Hebrews had a temple. But God had the Hebrews build a temple. Does that make Judaism, or not essentially Judaism, because Judaism is pretty new religion. Hebrewism, does it make the Hebrews pagans because they had a temple? Absolutely not. Science borrowed Latin names, even though Latin is a dead language. What do you do with that? Things evolve and get better or worse or change over time. Language changes. The meaning of words changes. This is the same thing with like Bible translations, especially the KJV, which is a useful translation. But some of the words that were written down in the KJV do not mean the same thing that they mean today because word meanings change. And if you don't appreciate that, then you are prone to error when you interpret things. The intent of something determines the meaning. Of course, context also determines the meaning, but it is the intent of the author that determines the meaning, not the interpretation of the interpreter. Does that make sense? So when you're reading anything in the Bible, for example, what makes a difference between a good interpretation and a bad interpretation is this. One is called exegesis. One is called eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you're projecting your own agenda, feelings, opinions onto the text and making it work for you. Exegesis is trying to figure out what did the author mean. Now, that author in question could be God directly. It could be Paul. It could be, you know, Moses, whoever. But the question is, what did the author intend by this? And that requires a lot of context, a lot of cultural context, looking at the context of surrounding verses, the whole chapter, the train of thought up until that verse in question, which most of the time people don't do. Most of the time people do eisegesis. They extract a verse and say, oh, see, it says this here without considering any of the cultural context, any of the literary context. And so what is the point? Well, the meaning changes when something is adopted, like with El, the Canaanite god. So the Trinity was not borrowed, first off, because we don't see any evidence of pagans using a trinity specifically where you have three persons in one God. Okay, there were a lot of divine triads, let's put it this way, we'll look at this in just a second, but there's never any evidence that the trinity was borrowed from pagan cultures. Pagan cultures didn't even have three gods in one. They had three gods, I shouldn't say three gods in one. Well, it's three persons in one God. You didn't have three, the, the pagans had three gods in a triad, but they never had three persons in one God. Do you see, do you see the important distinction here? It's very important. I hope you do, because this was never in history, and so therefore it was never borrowed. Now, we also know the meaning is determined by the author, right? So when there's a new intent for something, even though you borrow, this is a very important point, even though you borrow, when there's a new intent, what does that mean? That means the meaning changes. Just like with El, the supreme Canaanite god. El was taken from the Canaanites and appropriated to Yahweh. Does that mean that the Hebrews were pagan, that they, they borrowed a pagan concept? No, they took something from another culture 
and they changed the intent because they were now the new authors. And it's understood in the cultural context of the Hebrews that when you said Elohim, you weren't talking about the supreme Canaanite God. You were talking about Yahweh. You were talking about the God because that was the cultural context. So this is very, very important because the other thing is this. You have to prove, if you're going to say that the Trinity is pagan, you have to prove that pagans believed in a Trinity. Again, they had multiple triads. Absolutely. Triads were a thing. But no pagan in history ever had one God. They were not monotheists. And that one God was existing as a triune being, as a complex unity being. One God and three divine persons. That is unique to the progressive revelation of Christianity. There is no pagan culture in history that had this specific revelation ever. Now, there's a lot of copycats. Remember, Satan is always trying to counterfeit things, counterfeit the truth. So there's a lot of copycats, a lot of triads. Of course, Isis, Horus, Set, you know, there's a bunch of Canaanite ones too. There's a lot of copycats, but copycats are not like the original. The Trinity is unique to Yahweh. Another thing is this, there's scriptural support in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hebrews, and we'll, we'll talk about more of this stuff. This is a more expanded topic for later, but the Hebrews believed in something called the two powers in heaven. Up until like a century, you know, in the first century, first or second century, until they declared it a heresy. Why? Because of Christianity. Because now you had actually two powers in heaven that was revealed. You had the Father and the Son, but the Jews who rejected Jesus... And say, oh, we got to declare that a heresy. We can't, we can't have Christianity looking legitimate in in its early stages. And we'll look at that. We'll look at the two powers in heaven. But this was a Hebrew understanding for centuries. Why? Because the Old Testament is full of confusing situations where you have God speaking in the first person and the third person. And it's constantly changing. And then you have the angel of the Lord who also claims to be God, who, who receives worship, who does all these things that God does. You have patriarchs like Abraham referring to the angel of the Lord as God interchangeably with Yahweh and yet separate from Yahweh. And so you have a lot of these confusing things that if you don't understand the progressive revelation of the Trinity, which is finally and fully revealed in Christ, then you're stuck with saying, well, I'm a monotheist. There's only one God, but wait a minute, this is, this doesn't seem like there's one person, even though there's one God. You're stuck with that, and that's why the Jews had the two powers in heaven theory, and we're going to look at that, but there's plenty of proof, like I said, in the New Testament as well. That's obviously where all of this is revealed, because it clearly teaches that the Father is a person, separate from Jesus, and the Father is God, obviously teaches the Son is a person and separate from the Father, and the Son is God. And it also teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. And that person is also God. And we're going to back up all of this in future episodes. So the conclusion is that the Trinity is not, <clears throat> it's not pagan, excuse me. To say that the Trinity is pagan <clears throat> is a poorly informed claim because there was no pagans in history that ever believed such a thing. And borrowing something like L or doing, you know, creating temples doesn't make you pagan. 
Because when you borrow something and you change the meaning, you are now the new author. What does it mean to you? That's what matters. And what it meant, what it meant to the Hebrews when they borrowed El was just a word for Yahweh, the one God. So same thing with the Trinity. When the Trinity was created as a teaching in the church, and you'll see that it's been taught for a very, very long time. It's very consistent with the early church beliefs. This was just a natural expansion and reflection of what God had revealed throughout history, the last 2,000, well, I should say, we're now 4,000 years of history through the scriptures. So why is this Trinity such a problem? Why is this such a problem? Why are people questioning it? Well, the only answer I can think of is that we're in the last days. And we know that from 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, that for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Yeah, that's pretty much where we're living on. See my end time series if you haven't. Go check it out. I'll put a link for it in the description of this episode. And... Go check it out. Be edified. Know what's happening and what's on the horizon. Because most people are deceived about end times events. And we are, some people even think that the end times are optimistic, that things are going to get better. And that is exactly what the devil wants you to think. Because right now we are in maximal deception mode. And there is very much disinformation on everything, including the Trinity. Now, objection number four, and this is the last one, is that three persons add up to three gods. Three persons means three gods. Now, the word trinity comes from tri, which is three, and unity, which is one. So what does that mean? Well, the trinity is three whose and one what. What is the what? The what is God. You have one God, one being in three whose, three persons. It's not three gods. It's very important to understand that. It's not one plus one plus one equals one, or three even. It's infinity plus infinity plus infinity equals infinity. Do you see how that works? Do you see how even with math you can find proof of this? In my mind, I think it's proof, but I think everything points to God. But infinity, God is an infinite being. Three infinities, what do they create? They still have one one infinite situation, infinity. You don't have three infinities, you have infinity. Infinity is infinity, no matter how you slice it. And so, ultimately, we have to understand that when we use the word person, person is a limited term. Because again, we're, we're trying to describe God in physical things that we know. And already, from the get-go, from the first word out of our mouths, we have failed because we can't put God in a box. Language is just limited. When we say person, it carries with it certain connotations that don't apply to God. For example, in our reality, a person also has a body, a physical body. He's limited to time and space. That doesn't apply to God. So person is even the word person, when we say there's three persons in God, even though there's one being, even that is, you know, there's certain things that don't apply to God in terms of personhood. He's not limited by a physical body to one place at one time. The the Trinity is a relational situation, and it's defined by how they relate to one another. For example, you can look on your Trinity graphic. The Father begets the Son. 
The Son is begotten by the Father. The Spirit proceeds forth from both the Father and the Son. So it's a relational, dynamically unfolding, living, it's one living being. He's one living being. It's not it. I have to choose my words carefully here trying to describe some of these things which are essentially philosophical. So we have to remember that God is a person. God is a being. He's a being in three persons, coexisting simultaneously and relating to one another for infinity, from before creation and forever into the future. That's the Trinity. It's a living, dynamic model of a relational God. A relational God that is three persons, not persons in the way that we understand them completely, but persons in the way that separate from one another, but united in purpose. Each person is God, and that is very important. We're going to prove that throughout this series. But how the reality relates to Trinity, to the Trinity. And I told you then in the beginning that everything is created by the Lord. And of course, we agree to that. But the Bible says that everything was made for his glory. Everything is to point towards him. Everything is designed to reflect God's character, God's beauty, God's wisdom. And I believe that there's a lot of evidence that the reality we live in is a reflection of the triune being, being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Take a couple examples. For example, time. What do you have with time? You have past, present, and future. Space, height, depth, and width. Even matter, you have solid liquid gas. In Genesis 1, is the very first couple sentences of Genesis, you have the trinity of trinities. In the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth. That's matter. The trinity of trinities. All three things, all of them have three components that were created in the beginning. Very fascinating. Now, when it says space, when I say space, I don't mean outer space. I just mean space as in space between stuff. But humans have a body, mind, and soul. Colors, if you know anything about painting or design, the fundamental colors of the color wheel are red, yellow, and blue. You can get pretty much any color just by combining those three. Of course, you have white and black as well, but red, yellow, and blue are the foundational colors of the color spectrum. You have, for example, a speaker, the words spoken, and the breath that is spoken. And in a way, you can compare this to God himself. The Father is the speaker, Christ is the word, and the Spirit is the breath. And in this case, all three of those are persons. Of course, to us, we... we they're combined in one person. When I'm speaking to you right now, I'm the speaker. The words are just sound that's coming out of my mouth. And the breath is also just a physical situation. But with God, it's so much more. With God, the breath is the spirit. He's a person. He, he's God, the son, the word, the word made flesh. He's a person. The father is the speaker. All three, all three are persons and part of one being who is God. Now, again, I don't expect you to have this down in, in your mind. I, I don't completely understand it. Nobody completely understands the Trinity. It's a, it's a mystery. I see that it is the only logical explanation to deal with the facts. And I see how it works. I don't understand it fully. I don't think anybody does. And that's the point, is that we marvel at how interesting and and infinitely mysterious God is. But there's examples of complex unity already in nature that we can understand 
on a further basis, like, okay, even in the physical world, which is limited, unlike the spiritual world, remember, where things can juxtapose, you have, for example, things like schizophrenia, where you have multiple personalities in one being. Now, of course, there's not multiple persons that are separate from each other because you have a personality and then he clicks into another personality. So two, two things cannot be in the same space at the same time. So there's that limitation again. But still, you have multiple personality disorder in one being. That exists. You have Siamese twins, people that are born, you know, two, two people, two separate persons, two individuals in one being. Of course, this is not a natural thing. It's not a good thing. It's a mutation but it's possible even in the physical world. You have things like snakes with two heads. Have you ever seen that? I think that's just wild. How does that work? I've even seen like these people who are Siamese twins. Like how on earth does that work? Of course, again, these things are mutations. They're not supposed to be that way, but it's possible. So how much more is the God of the universe who is a spiritual being and not limited by anything able to have a complex unity? Very simple. Now, within the Trinity, there are some important doctrines that we should look at. And we'll come back to these over and over again in the future episodes. But just to break them down a little bit, the first one is economy and ontology. These are just theological terms that basically refer to the nature of being versus what each person is doing as a role. Okay, so economy is what are you doing? What's your role? What's your job? What's your duties? What's your actions? Ontology is who you are. Who are you? What's your essence? What, what kind of being are you? It's very important that we don't mix the two up where they're not supposed to be. The Christian, the Christian trinity, Christianity, teaches an economic trinity, meaning a, a trinity of different persons that are doing different things, different roles, but ontologically, they are one being ontological unity with economic trinity. Does that make sense? So you have one being that is God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But they each have different roles. And this is very clear from scripture. We're going to be breaking down this quite a bit, especially in the episode on the Trinity and salvation. But for example, again, just using real world examples that help to flesh this out for you. So you see that even in the physical world that is extremely limited, we can see shadows and types of the truth. A man and a woman, when they're married, you have a marriage, the ontology of a marriage. You have one unit, which is a marriage that has an ontological value, meaning it's a union between a man and a woman. Within that marriage, you have different economies. The man does certain things, the, the, he's a husband, the wife does other things. She's a wife. You have different roles and duties. For example, a woman can get pregnant. Men cannot get pregnant, despite all the liberal <laughs> liberal propaganda these days. Men cannot get pregnant. So women can get pregnant. Who do, they, who do they get pregnant by? They get pregnant by men. There's a way that energy flows in this economy. Is a woman a human being? Yes. Is a man a human being? They have the same ontology. Are they both part of the marriage? Yes, they have the same ontology, different economies. So you see how this works between these two 
types of concepts. Now, another way to think about this is kind of having a trinity with Adam, Eve, and Seth. Adam, although that's his proper name, was also named because Adam, Adam means human, man. So in some sense, you could think of it like this. Adam, right, is Adam, meaning mankind. Eve is Adam, meaning she's human, but she's also Eve. Seth is Adam, meaning he's a human being. He's part of Adam, Adam, mankind, but he's Seth. So all three are Adam, but each of them are also different persons. Adam is Adam. Seth is Adam, but also Seth. And Eve is Adam, meaning she's a human being. She's part of mankind, but she's Eve. She's her own person. So these types of complex unities are everywhere in our own reality. And again, these things are shadows and types of something much more profound and ultimately a mystery. It's a mystery because we don't have any way to, to understand fully the triune being of God. But we accept the testimony of Scripture and it's the best possible explanation. Now, another doctrine that's also very important is the doctrine of simplicity. Now, this is on a bare bones level, what it basically means is that because God is self-existing, and again, we get this from scripture, God is self-existing because he's the creator. He was not created. Therefore, he's not made of any separate parts like we are. We're made of cells. Cells are made of atoms and so on. But all those things were created. God is not made of separate parts because if he was, then those separate parts would have had to have been created. That means somebody created God. Does that make sense? So the doctrine of simplicity is very important because God is not made up of separate parts. And we get that from God being self-existent because God is the creator. However, and the reason I bring this up is that there is a doctrine called hypersimplicity. Maybe that's not the official name, but there's people who hold to this. And this is now taking this to taking a, a normal doctrine, which is the doctrine of simplicity, and taking it to a very imbalanced perspective. Let's put it that way. And things that espouse this type of doctrine are things like modalism, which you'll learn about. Modalism teaches that basically there's one God, and every time that we see a different person in the Bible, whether it's Jesus, the Father, or the Holy Spirit, it's just God kind of phasing in and out of these different modes. That's why it's called modalism. But there are many places in scripture that refute modalism very easily if you know your scriptures, like, for example, the baptism, where all three persons were there, many times where the Father spoke to the Son, many times where the angel of the Lord is separate from Yahweh, and yet he's still Yahweh, throughout the Bible. And we'll look at these things. But things like oneness Pentecostals are modalists, and this is hypersimplicity, meaning, yes, God is one in the sense he's one God, he's not made of separate parts, but now we take this to an extreme and say, well, it's just one God, one God, one person. That's the imbalance. That's the extreme that you need to watch out for. Because another way that this is snuck in, and again, all these things tend towards error. Modalism is an error, but inseparable, inseparable operations, which is another teaching that is gaining some traction 
it's a philosophical teaching. It's basically what the teaching is, is that the Godhead is not separate. I'm trying to word this in the correct way. The Godhead is not separated in their actions, meaning every action that is done by God as a triune God is not done separately. The Father doesn't act separate from the Son. The Son doesn't act separate from the Father and so on. Now, on first glance, that may seem like, well, yeah, that that makes sense. They're of one mind, but this is not what it's teaching. It's true that they are of one mind. The Father is always going to be of one mind with the Son and the Spirit and vice versa for all three of them. They are of one purpose. But that they act separately in history is patently obvious through, for example, the Incarnation. The Incarnation disproves inseparable operations. Inseparable operations is a philosophical position where most of the time when you read, it's a very confusing thing, so I, I don't really encourage you to study up on it too much. I mean, ultimately, you should understand the opposing positions of other people. But just a word of warning, it is very confusing because nobody's able to really articulate their position using Scripture. It's a philosophical teaching, much like many other errors that rely on philosophy, like Molinism, like Arminianism. All these things are philosophical positions, more so than they are scriptural positions. But I digress. They, the thing is, they don't really use the term person very much. They make the spirit be sort of this abstract kind of love proceeding forth between the Father and the Son. It's sort of this abstract force. It's very impersonal, and honestly, it tends towards modalism. Because if you think that God is united in action on every single thing that he does, and acting as one person, basically, so they're saying, well, there's three persons. They don't even really use the term persons. Again, it's very, very confused position. But let's say, for the sake of argument, it's three persons, but they're all acting as one person all the time. And they use, again, philosophy like, well, there's a sphere going through a two-dimensional plane, so if you were a, a square, you would see that as a circle, and so, you know, the sphere is just one sphere, and it's acting as one sphere, but, you know, it's outside of your dimension of perception. All these different things to justify their view, when clearly Scripture teaches that God acts separately through the separate persons, but they are always of one accord, of one mind. The Bible teaches one God, one purpose, but separate agents. When it says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, our God is one, the Shema, the word for one there is echad. And echad is a word that denotes complex unity. Just like, for example, when it talks about a man shall leave his wife and two shall become one flesh. One flesh here, does that mean that once you sleep with your wife, you're now stuck together? As a mutant? No. It's a complex term. It's a complex unity. It's talking about one mind. It, the ontology is changing. You're, you're in a marriage. You're, you're one flesh, meaning ontologically you're one unit, even though you are two separate people. Remember, Adam is Adam. Eve is Adam. Seth is Adam. They are a family. The ontology of the family is one family with separate persons. Now, again, these things are just shadows of the truth, so you can't take these examples too far with the Trinity because the Trinity is unique to God and God is not limited. But if you believe that the Bible teaches one God, one purpose, one agent, 
which is what inseparable operations teaches, even though they affirm the Trinity somehow, then you are saying that you are, basically it's modalism. That's what modalism teaches, that it's just one agent acting. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches one God, one purpose, separate agents. And we will show that to you over and over again in the series. But the Trinity is always at work in the Bible. And we're going to look at a couple examples. For example, Genesis 1, 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We see that God is creating and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So very clearly so, you have God and the Spirit. But then John, later in the New Testament, where he kind of gives more clarity with the creation, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, separate from God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. So we have, in the beginning, we have the Word. The Word was with God, so that's separation, but also the same status. The word was God. In the beginning was God. All things were made through him. So now the word is the one who created. And without him, it was nothing made that was made. So you have in the very beginning of Genesis, you have God, but then the distinction comes with the spirit. But then you have also John 1, the word was God and the word was with God and the word is the one doing the creating. So how do you make sense of that? Well, you make sense of that with a trinity where the Father is creating through the Son and the Spirit. It's like, again, speaker. You have the speaker, you have the Word, and you have the breath. Except in God, that's a multi-dimensional type of situation that we can't even begin to fathom. But we can marvel at it, and that's the point. And, of course, we have in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord, and God Almighty. All those three are revealed in the Old Testament as, as separate. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh. He claims Yahweh's actions, but he's separate from Yahweh. So you have God Almighty referring to the Father. And you have the Spirit of God, obviously. That's a very, we're going to look at that in a future episode. But again, just cursory review. The Old Testament does teach a trinity, but it's not very explicit. It's not very explicit at all. And that's why we have the New Testament where Christ revealed all these things. Where in the New Testament, you have the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you have God the Father who are all God equally, and who are all different persons. You have things like Jesus' baptism, the transfiguration. You have the Father and Son being separate persons multiple times in speaking, and yet God is used for both, and we're going to look at that in the future. But even Matthew 28, verse 19, when you have the baptism in the three names, in the, in the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, that's evidence right there. Now, a lot of people will say, well, this is added later by scribes. This whole thing with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being baptized in the name of the three, one name of God, but yet three persons. They say, oh, this was later added by, by scribes. It's a Trinitarian conspiracy. But the scribes, if you know anything about the scribes, the scribes are very loyal people to the word. The, their utmost oath was to preserve the integrity of the word of God. And so they wanted to do justice to the gospel. Most likely when they were adding these things, if they did add them, it proves the Christians believed in the Trinity very long before the Council of Nicaea. And of course, people who argue this say that the scribes added these things. They're changing the Bible to, to Trinitarian conspiracy. Well, you ignore the evidence of the spirit as a personal being. And we're going to look at all that evidence in a future episode. 
We ignore the evidence that Jesus is called God and says that he is equal with God countless times. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at Jesus' testimony of himself, and we're going to look at what other people have said about Jesus. And the testimony is undeniable of Scripture that Jesus is both God, equal with God, Jesus is the creator. I mean, there's no way around it. Jesus claimed to be God. Yes, he did. So all the people who believe that and who have been told that he hasn't claimed to be God, or or these are just misinterpretations or conspiracies, we will address those points in future episodes. We're going to unpack all that. But a couple things too, again, just going back to your graphic, the inter-Trinitary relationships. So go check out the graphic. There's a lot of great Bible verses I've put on there that you can reference them yourself, but just a couple just surface ones. The Father to the Son, He begets the Son, He glorifies the Son. The Son to the Father is that He listens to the Father, He glorifies the Father. The Father speaks to the Spirit, and He sends the Spirit, and the Son follows the Spirit, and gives the Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to the Son, and He glorifies the Son. And the Holy Spirit searches the Father, and also listens to the Father. Now, the New Testament invites us to have a fellowship with God, but with each person. And I can show it to you. In the in John, uh, 1 John 1, verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may also fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So you have fellowship with the Father there. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom we are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're called into the fellowship of his Son, but we're also part of the fellowship of the Father. Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So wait a minute, you have now fellowship with three different people. Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Holy Spirit that the Bible teaches you. And these are just a few verses. But you have a major problem if you reject the Trinity. If you think that only God the Father is God, and yet the Bible invites you to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, that's another proof text that the Holy Spirit is a person. You can't have fellowship with a force. But besides the point, if God the Father is the only God, and Jesus is somehow not God, and he's just a messenger, less divine, whatever other definition you come up with, the Bible invites you to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. The only possible way that that is possible is if God is a triune being of one God, express himself in in three divine and co-equal persons. You have three persons, one God. So, Otherwise, you are breaking the first commandment of worshiping other gods. How can God call you into fellowship with somebody that is not God? Big question. And ultimately, we have to be honest with Scripture. Because Scripture says that there is three persons, one God. So, conclusion, final thoughts. The Trinity is not logical by our limited minds. Of course not. But this is proof that you're dealing with a supreme being not proof against it. There's also a lot of things that we don't understand about God, even our own world, like the placebo effect. (laughs) Science still doesn't understand it. Life, DNA, so many things we don't understand. 
And yet we try, we're trying to understand one of the most profound things, which is the nature of God, the nature of God's being. I mean, that's, how can you possibly understand that? You just take the Bible's word for it and you wrestle with it and you play with it and you admire it and you marvel at it. The Trinity is not pagan. It's not made up either <laughs> by the Catholic Church. It's an explanation for what we deal with in Scripture. Like I said, if you don't have a Trinity, you have some serious problems, like we just discussed with the fellowship situation. It's not pagan because when you borrow something, borrowing it doesn't make it pagan. It's the new intent of the author, the new author that makes the definition of the thing. If the Canaanites worshipped El as the supreme being and the Hebrews borrowed El and applied it to God as Elohim, that's a new meaning, meaning there's a new intent for that term. So the Trinity, that's besides the point because the Trinity was never borrowed. There's no place in history where you can say that the Trinity is a concept of three persons in one divine being, monotheistic, expression of religion, of faith, using three persons in one divine being. That was never the case in any pagan culture, ever. So that's a false assumption. The Trinity is not pagan. That's what the Bible reveals. It's three persons, one God. It's not three gods. Because again, God may have a comp... We don't understand God's complex unity, complex consciousness, however you want to word it. But we have proof in reality, that such a thing is possible, both from Scripture in the spirit world with those demons and that uh, possessed man, where where the answer is one person, but they're all superimposed in one body, and from from the natural world, like two-headed snakes, Siamese twins, you know, multiple personality disorder. You have ontology and economy within families, one marriage, man and woman with different economies. They're both part of the marriage. Adam is Adam. Eve is Adam. Seth is Adam. But they're all different persons. See how all this works? Again, these are just shadows of the truth. The truth is not limited by these things. And remember that persons carry with it connotations that do not apply to God. When we say three persons, one of the stumbling blocks is, well, how can that be? And you're thinking of persons as in a real person. Of course, God is a real person, but I'm like a physical person is what I mean. Physical people are limited. They're limited by two things at the same time in the same place. This is the fundamental limitation of reality. That part of personhood doesn't apply to God. So even our understanding of personhood, when we say God has three persons in one being, isn't, isn't 100% because some of the things that are considered part of personhood don't apply to God. Very important. Creation has lots of shadows and types that point to the Trinity. We looked at that. You know, uh, time, past, present, future, space, um, liquid, solid, gas, or those cells matter. Space is height, depth, wet, height, depth, (laughs) oh my gosh, height, depth, and width. And you have the Trinity of Trinities, which was created in the beginning. So all these things point to a triune being. In my mind, I think it's very obvious. It's not primary evidence, but it certainly is something that points to the Creator. God is a spirit. Spirit's not limited by two things in the same space at the same time. There's a lot of solid scriptural evidence for separate persons interacting with each other and acting separately. 
not out of purpose with one another, but acting individually and separately. And that's very important because the whole doctrine of inseparable operations and modalism is not supported by scripture. It's a philosophical conjecture. Of course, modalism is a heresy and that one's easy to refute, but inseparable operations, people who teach that, they affirm the Trinity. And so it's very confusing because they're very contradictory in their own position. And again, the term one needs a definition. What are we talking when we say one? What do you mean when you say our God is one? Do we mean like to become one flesh, like complex unity, ontologically one, but, you know, economically different, ontologically one God, but economically three different persons? Because this is this is a common verse that's used. We'll break this down in a future episode, but this is a common verse that says, see, it's only one God. It's only God the Father, and Jesus isn't God. Well, it's not really what that means. Echad, echad, E-C-H-A-D, refers to a complex unity, and so we have to be careful. But we are also invited to the fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as one God. That is the only explanation. You have different persons, each have fellowship, they're all the same God. How does that work in our minds? I don't know. But that's what the Bible teaches, and we can marvel at that because they each are God, and they're one God because you have ontology versus economy. Ontology is the nature of being. Economy is how things are happening. One marriage, a husband and a wife, they each have different roles. Women can get pregnant. Men are the one impregnating women. That's the way it works. That's the economy within the one ontology. Two economies, one ontology, right? Adam, Eve, and Seth. One ontology, mankind, family, different economies. Adam's the father, Eve's the mother, Seth is the child. Different economies, one ontology. Not that hard. It's really not that hard. And again, we, if we're trying to fit God into a box, it's you're not doing scripture justice and you're not doing your faith justice. So the Trinity is a central teaching of Christianity. And honestly, it's the best explanation that fits the facts presented by scripture. We are not making up the Trinity. The Bible forces you into the Trinity. And if you refuse to submit to that, if you refuse what the Bible says, then you run into all sorts of errors. We're going to have an episode at the end of this series devoted strictly to all the errors, like Unitarianism, modalism, and a bunch of other ones. But the point is that if you refuse and reject what the Bible says, you are going to run into error. You're going to run into a lot of problems. Now, you will either create a cult, or you will use a lot of philosophy and confuse yourself, like inseparable operations, and drift towards being a cult, like modalism, which is wrong, it's a heresy, and you will basically run into error. So either way you cut it, if you reject what the Bible says, then you are running into trouble. The Trinity is not a static model of God, but a dynamic picture of the relationships within God, because God as a being has complex unity, if any of that makes sense. Complex unity means you have one God, three divine persons, not persons in the way that we fully understand them because certain things don't apply to God, 
like being limited to a physical place and two things in the same space at the same time. That's why when Jesus returns and delivers the kingdom to God the Father so that God may be all in all, the triune being will rule through Christ's body on earth, glorified body. God as a triune being, as one being of Father, Son, Spirit, will exist on earth with man in the body of Jesus Christ, in the ascended glorified body of Jesus Christ, which is a profound reality that you will be able to experience the triune God when he returns, provided that you have faith in his first advent when he came as a humble servant, as just the son who came to die for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world for the gospel. And if you put very, and you put your faith in that, then you'll be saved and you'll get the promise of the Holy Spirit and that spirit will conform you to the image of Christ. So then when he returns, you will love him just like the father loves him. But to behold the triune God on earth will be the reason that we were created. And that's a phenomenal thing to, I can't even imagine that. And that's what the Bible says. No heart or mind has imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And it's true. We can't possibly imagine that, but we can look forward to it. We can get excited. We can say, wow, that's going to be so amazing. I can't even wrap my mind around it. It's there for you to wrestle with because in wrestling with it, you get to know and marvel at how precious and infinitely valuable God is. But the moment you put God in a box, there's a lot of things that put God, put him in a box. Arminianism puts in a box because Arminianism says that, well, you know, God can save you, but up to a point because you have free will. So there's a line that God can't cross and that's your free will. And that puts God in a box. When you put God in a box and say, well, I, I reject the Trinity. It can't be because that's three gods. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. So it's got to be one God. You're trying to put God in a box and you lead into error, misrepresent God. And you, some people even reject the deity of Christ. And then, then you don't have no atonement. How can a creative being atone for sins? The only way that sins could be atoned forever is through the blood of an uncreated being, which is the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, the God-man, both the propitiation for the sins and the one who could forgive, which is profound. It's all very profound. We don't understand the incarnation, so that's another thing to add to the list. So, look, I hope today has been a good introduction for you. We're going to get into some more very specific aspects of this discussion in the future. We're going to look at, again, everything from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We're going to go topic by topic. This series will probably be, I don't know, maybe 10 episodes long, something like that. A lot of good stuff. I'm very excited for it. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me or put them in the comments. But I hope you've learned something today. I hope that it's encouraged you to dive deeper into this topic with your own understanding. And if you don't believe in the Trinity, or if you're not sure, then I hope this has maybe opened up some questions for you, some critical thinking, some, some hmm, some wondering, and to really look at your own process as to how you're evaluating whether this is true or not. Because a lot of times we evaluate things based on how we feel. This doesn't make sense to me, so it must not be the truth. And that's not always the case, because things when we're dealing with God, most things don't make sense in terms of our own worldly logic. So that's all I have for you today. God bless, have a great one, and we'll see you next time.
Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.